Essays on some unsettled questions of political economy. Essay number four, part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays on some unsettled questions of political economy by John Stuart Mill. Essay four, on profits and interest. Part Two. The only expression of the law of profits which seems to be correct is that they depend upon the cost of production of wages. This must be received as the ultimate principle. From this may be deduced all the corollaries which Mr. Ricardo and others have drawn from his theory of profits as expounded by himself. The cost of production of the wages of one laborer for a year is the result of two concurrent elements or factors, viz. first, the quality of commodities which the state of the labor market affords to him, secondly, the cost of production of each of those commodities. It follows that the rate of profits can never rise but in conjunction with one or two other changes, first, a diminished remuneration of the laborer, or, secondly, an improvement in production or an extension of commerce by which any of the articles habitually consumed by the laborer may be obtained at a smaller cost. If the improvement be in any article which is not consumed by the laborer, it merely lowers the price of that article, and thereby benefits capitalists and all other people so far as they are consumers of that particular article. It may be said to increase gross profits, but not the rate of profit. So, on the other hand, the rate of profit cannot fall unless concurrently with one of two events. First, an improvement in the laborer's condition, or, secondly, an increased difficulty of producing or importing some article which the laborer habitually consumes. The progress of population and cultivation has a tendency to lower profits through the latter of these two channels, owing to the well-known law of the application of capital to land, that a double capital does not, cateris paribus, yield a double produce. There is, therefore, a tendency in the rate of profits to fall with the progress of society. But there is also an antagonist tendency of profits to rise by the successive introduction of improvements in agriculture and in the production of those manufactured articles which the laborers consume. Supposing, therefore, that the actual comforts of the laborer remain the same, profits will fall or rise according as population or improvements in the production of food and other necessities advance fastest. The rate of profits, therefore, tends to fall from the following causes. 1. An increase of capital beyond population, producing increased competition for labor. 2. An increase of population, occasioning a demand for an increased quantity of food, which must be produced at a greater cost. The rate of profits tends to rise from the following causes. 1. An increase of population beyond capital producing increased competition for employment. 2. Improvements producing increased cheapness of necessities and other articles habitually consumed by the laborer. The circumstances which regulate the rate of interest have usually been treated, even by professed writers on political economy, in a vague, loose, and unscientific manner.
It has, however, been felt that there is some connection between the rate of interest and the rate of profit, that, to use the words of Adam Smith, much will be given for money when much can be made of it. It has been felt also that the fluctuations in the market rate of interest from day to day are determined, like other matters of bargain and sale, by demand and supply. It has, therefore, been considered as an established principle that the rate of interest varies from day to day according to the quantity of capital offered or called on loan, but conforms on the average of years to a standard determined by the rate of profits, bearing some proportion to that rate, but a proportion which few attempts have been made to define. In consequence of these views, it has been customary to judge of the general rate of profits at any time or place, by the rate of interest at that time and place, it being supposed that the rate of interest, though liable to temporary fluctuations, can never vary for a very long period of time, unless profits vary, a notion which appears to us to be erroneous. It was observed by Adam Smith that profits may be considered as divided into two parts, of which one may properly be considered as the remuneration for the use of the capital itself, the other as the reward of the labor of superintending its employment, and that the former of these will correspond with the rate of interest. The producer who borrows capital to employ it in his business will consent to pay, for the use of it, all that remains of the profits if he can make it, after reserving what he considers reasonable remuneration for the trouble and risk which he incurs by borrowing and enjoying it. This remark is just, but it remains necessary to give greater precision in the ideas which it involves. The difference between the profit which can be made by the use of capital and the interest which will be paid for it is rightly characterized as wages of superintendence but to infer from this that it is regulated by entirely the same principles as other wages would be to push the analogy too far. It is wages, but wages paid by a commission upon the capital employed. If the general rate of profit is 10%, and the rate of interest 5%, the wages of superintendents will be 5%, and though one borrower employs a capital of 100,000, one, another no more than 100, one, the labor of both will be rewarded at the same percentage, though in the one ease this symbol will represent an income of five one, in the other case of five thousand one. Yet it cannot be pretended that the labor of the two borrowers differs in this proportion. The rule, therefore, that equal quantities of labor of equal hardness and skill are equally remunerated does not hold of this kind of labor. The wages of any other labor are here an inapplicable criterion. The wages of superintendents are distinguished from ordinary wages by another peculiarity, that they are not paid in advance out of capital, like the wages of all other laborers, but merge in the profit and are not realized until the production is completed. This takes them entirely out of the ordinary law of wages. The wages of laborers who are paid in advance are regulated by the number of competitors, compared with the amount of capital. The laborers can consume no more than what has been previously accumulated. But there is no such limit to the remuneration of a kind of labor 
which is not paid for out of wealth previously accumulated, but out of that produce which it is itself employed in calling into existence. When the circumstances are duly weighed, it will be perceived that although profit may be correctly analyzed into interest and wages of superintendence, we ought not to lay it down as the law of interest, that it is profits minus the wages of superintendence. For the two expressions, it would be decidedly the more correct that the wages of superintendence are regulated by the rate of interest, or are equal to profits minus interest. In strict propriety, neither expression would be allowed. Interest and wages of superintendence can scarcely be said to depend upon one another. They are to one another in the same relation as wages and profits are. They are like two buckets in a well. When one rises, the other descends. But neither of the two motions in the cause of the other. Both are simultaneous effects of the same cause, the turning of the windlass. There are among the capitalists of every country a considerable number who are habitually and almost necessarily lenders, to whom scarcely any difference between what they could receive for their money and what they could make by it would be an equivalent for incurring the risk and labor of carrying out business. In this predicament is the property of widows and orphans, of many public bodies, of charitable institutions, most property which is vested in trustees, and the property of a great number of persons unused to business, and who have a distaste for it, or whose other occupations prevent their engaging in it. How long a proportion of the property lent to the nation comes under this description has been pointed out in Mr. Took's Considerations on the State of the Currency. There is another large class, consisting of bankers, bill-brokers, and others, who are money-lenders by profession, and who enter into that profession with the intention of making such gains as it will yield them, and who would not be induced to change their business in any but a very strong pecuniary inducement. There is, therefore, a large class of persons who are habitually lenders. On the other hand, all persons in business may be considered as habitually borrowers, except in times of stagnation they are all desirous of extending their business beyond their own capital, and are never desirous of lending any portion of their capital, except for very short periods, during which they cannot advantageously invest it in their own trade. There is, in short, a productive class, and there is, besides, a class technically styled the moneyed class, who live upon the interest of their capital without engaging personally in the work of production. The class of borrowers may be considered as unlimited. There is no quantity of capital that could be offered to be lent, which the productive classes would not be willing to borrow, at any rate of interest, which would afford them the slightest excess of profit above a bare equivalent for the additional risk incurred by that transaction. Of the evils attendant on insolvency, the only assignable limit to the inclination to borrow is the power of giving security the producers would find it difficult to borrow more than an amount equal to their own capital if more than half the capital of the country were in the hands of persons who preferred lending it to engaging personally in business and if the surplus were greater than could be invested in loans to government or in mortgages upon the property of unproductive consumers the competition of lenders would force down the rate of interest very low. A certain portion of the moneyed class would be obliged either to sacrifice their predilections by engaging in business, 
or to lend on inferior security, and they would accordingly accept, where they could obtain good security, an abatement of interest equivalent to the difference of risk. This is an extreme case. Let us put an extreme case of a contrary kind. Suppose that the wealthy people of any country, not relishing an idle life, and having a strong taste for gainful labor, were generally indisposed to accept of a smaller income, in order to be relieved of the labor and anxiety of business. Every producer, in flourishing circumstances, would be eager to borrow, and few willing to lend. Under these circumstances, the rate of interest would differ very little from the rate of profit. The trouble of managing a business is not proportionally increased by an increase of the magnitude of the business, and a very small surplus profit above the rate of interest would therefore be a sufficient inducement to capitalists to borrow. We may even conceive a people whose habits were such that in order to induce them to lend it might be necessary to offer them a rate of interest fully equal to the ordinary rate of profits. In that case, of course, the productive classes would scarcely ever borrow, but government and the unproductive classes, who do not borrow in order to make a profit by the loan, but from the pressure of a real or supposed necessity, might still be ready to borrow at this high rate. Although the inclination to borrow has no fixed or necessary limit, except the power of giving security, yet it is always, in point of fact, stops short of this, from the uncertainty of the prospects of any individual producer, which generally indisposes him to involve himself to the full extent of his means of payment. There is never any permanent want of market for things in general, but there may be so for the commodity which any one individual is producing, and even if there is a demand for the commodity, people may not buy it of him, but of some other. There are, consequently, never more than a portion of the producers, the state of whose business encourages them to add to their capital by borrowing, and even these are disposed to borrow only as much as they see an immediate prospect of profitably employing. There is, therefore, a practical limit to the demand of borrowers at any given instant, and when these demands are all satisfied, any additional capital offered on loan can find an investment only by a reduction of the rate of interest. The amount of borrowers being given, and by the amount of borrowers here is meant the aggregate sum which people are willing to borrow at some given rate, the rate of interest will depend upon the quantity of capital owned by people who are unwilling or unable to engage in trade. The circumstances which determine this are, on the one hand, the degree in which a taste for business or an aversion to it happens to be prevalent among the classes possessed of property, and on the other hand, the amount of annual accumulation from the earnings of labor. Those who accumulate their wages, fees, or salaries have, of course, speaking generally, no means of investing their savings, except by lending them to others. Their occupations prevent them from personally superintending any employment. Upon these circumstances, then, the rate of interest depends, the amount of borrowers being given, and the counter-proposition equally holds that the above circumstances being given, the rate of interest depends upon the amount of borrowers. Suppose, for example, that when the rate of interest has adjusted itself to the existing state of the circumstances which affect the disposition to borrow and to lend, a war breaks out, which induces government, for a series of years, 
to borrow annually a large sum of money. During the whole of this period, the rate of interest will remain considerably above what it was before, and what it will be afterward. Before the commencement of the supposed war, all persons who were disposed to lend at the then rate of interest had found borrowers, and their capital was invested. This may be assumed, for if any capital had been seeking for a borrower at the existing rate of interest, and unable to find one, its owner would have offered it at a rate slightly below the existing rate. He would, for instance, have bought into the funds at a slight advance of price, and thus set at liberty the capital of some fund-holder, who, the funds yielding a lower interest, would have been obliged to accept a lower interest from individuals. Since then all who were willing to lend their capital at the market rate have already lent it, government will not be able to borrow unless by offering higher interest, though with the existing habits of the possessors of disposable capital an increased number cannot be found who are willing to lend at the existing rate, there are doubtless some who will be induced to lend by the temptation of a higher rate. The same temptation will also induce some persons to invest in the purchase of the new stock, what they would otherwise have expended unproductively in increasing their establishments, or productively by improving their estates. The rate of interest will rise just sufficiently to call forth an increase of lenders to the amount required. Thus, we apprehend to be the cause why the rate of interest in this country was so high as it is well known to have been during the last war. It is therefore by no means to be inferred, as some have done, that the general rate of profits was unusually high during the same period, because interest was so. Supposing the rate of profits to have been precisely the same during the war as before or after, at the rate of interest would nevertheless have risen from the causes and in the manner above described. The practical use of the preceding investigation is to moderate the confidence with which inferences are frequently drawn with respect to the rate of profit from evidence regarding the rate of interest, and to show that although the rate of profit is one of the elements which combine to determine the rate of interest, the latter is also acted upon by causes peculiar to itself, and may either rise or fall, both temporarily and permanently, while the general rate of profits remains unchanged. The introduction of banks, which perform the function of lenders and loan-brokers, with or without that of issuers of paper money, produces some further anomalies in the rate of interest, which will not, so far as we are aware, have hitherto brought within the pale of exact science. If bankers were merely a class of middlemen between the lender and the borrower, if they merely received deposits of capital from those who had it lying unemployed in their hands, and lent thus, together with their own capital, to the productive classes, receiving interest for it, and paying interest in their turn to those who had placed capital in their hands, the effect of the operations of banking on the rate of interest would be to lower it in some slight degree. The banker receives and collects together sums of money, much too small, when taken individually, to render it worth while for the owners to look out for an investment, but which in the aggregate form a considerable amount. This amount may be considered a clear addition to the productive capital of the country, at least to the capital in activity at any moment. 
and as the addition to the capital accrues wholly to that part of it which is not employed by the owners but lent to other producers the natural effect is a diminution of the rate of interest the banker to the extent of his own private capital the expenses of his business being first paid is a lender at interest but being subject to risk and trouble fully equal to that which belongs to most other employments he cannot be satisfied with the mere interest even of his whole capital he must have the ordinary profits of stock or he will not engage in the business the state of banking must be such as to hold out to him the prospect of adding to the interest of what remains of his own capital after paying the expenses of his business interest upon capital deposited with him insufficient amount to make up after paying the expenses the ordinary profit which could be derived from his own capital in any productive employment this will be accomplished in one of two ways one if the circumstances of society are such as to furnish a ready investment of disposable capital as for instance in london where the public funds and other securities of undoubted stability and affording great advantages for receiving the interest without trouble and realizing the principal without difficulty when required tempt all persons who have sums of importance lying idle to invest them on their own account without the intervention of any middleman the deposits with bankers consist chiefly of small sums likely to be unwanted in a very short period for current expenses and the interest on which would seldom be worth the trouble of calculating it bankers therefore do not allow any interest on their deposits after paying the expenses of their business all the rest of the interest they receive is clear gain but as the circumstance of banking as of all other modes of employing capital will on average be such as to afford to a person entering into the business a prospect of realizing the ordinary and no more than the ordinary profits upon his own capital the gains of each banker by the investment of his deposits will not on the average exceed what is necessary to make up his gains on his own capital to the ordinary rate it is of course competition which brings about this limitation whether competition operates by lowering the rate of interest or by dividing the business among a larger number it is difficult to decide probably it operates in both ways but it is by no means impossible that it may operate in the latter way alone just as an increase in the number of physicians does not lower the fees though it diminishes an average competitor's chance of obtaining them it is not impossible that the disposition of the lenders might be such that they would cease to lend rather than acquiesce in any reduction of the rate of interest if so the arrival of a new lender in the person of a banker of deposit would not lower the rate of interest in any considerable degree a slight fall would take place and with that exception things would be as before except that the capital in the hands of the banker would have put itself into the place of an equal portion of the capital belonging to other lenders who would themselves have engaged in business for example by subscribing to some joint stock company or entering into commandite bankers profits would then be limited to the ordinary rate chiefly by the division of the business among many banks so that each on the average would receive no more interest on his deposits than would suffice to make up the interest on his own capital to the ordinary rate of profit 
after paying all expenses. 2. But if the circumstances of society render it difficult and inconvenient for persons who wish to live upon the interest of their money to seek an investment for themselves, the bankers become agents for this specific purpose. Large as well as small sums are deposited with them, and they allow interest to their customers. Such is the practice of the Scotch banks, and of most of the country banks in England. Their customers, not living at any of the great seats of money transactions, prefer entrusting their capital to somebody on the spot whom they know and in whom they confide. He invests their money on the best terms that he can, and pays to them such interest as he can afford to give, retaining a compensation for his own risk and trouble. This compensation is fixed by the competition of the market. The rate of interest is no further lowered by its operation that inasmuch as it brings together the lender and the borrower in a safe and expeditious manner. The lender incurs less risk and a larger proportion, therefore, of the holders of capital are willing to be lenders. When a banker, in addition to his other functions, is also an issuer of paper money, he gains an advantage similar to that which the London bankers derive from the de deposits. To the extent to which he can put forth his notes, he has so much the more to lend, without himself having to pay any interest for it. If the paper is convertible, it cannot get into circulation permanently without displacing specie, which goes abroad and brings back an equivalent value. To the extent of this value, there is an increase of the capital of the country, and the increase accrues solely to that part of the capital which is employed in loans. If the paper is inconvertible, and instead of displacing specie, depreciates the currency, the banker by issuing it levies a tax on every person who has money in his hands or due to him. He thus appropriates to himself a portion of the capital of other people, and a portion of their revenues. The capital might have been intended to be lent, or it might have been intended to be employed by the owner. Such part of it as was intended to be employed by the owner now changes its destination, and is lent. The revenue is either intended to be accumulated, in which case it had already become capital, or it was intended to be spent. In this case, revenue is converted into capital, and thus, strange as it may appear, the depreciation of the currency, when effected in this way, operates to a certain extent as a forced accumulation. This, indeed, is no palliation of its inquiry. Though A might have spent his property unproductively, B ought not to be permitted to rob him of it, because B will spend it on productive labor. In any supportable case, however, the issue of paper money by bankers increases the proportion of the whole capital of the country, which is destined to be lent. The rate of interest must therefore fall until some of the lenders give over lending, or until the increase of borrowers absorbs the whole. But a fall of the rate of interest sufficient to enable the money market to absorb the whole of the paper loans may not be sufficient to reduce the profits of a lender who lends what costs him nothing, to the ordinary rate of profit upon his capital. Here, therefore, competition will operate chiefly by dividing the business. The notes of each bank will be confined within so narrow a district, or will divide the supply of a distinct district with so many other banks, that on average each will receive no larger amount of interest on his notes than will make up the interest on his own capital to the ordinary rate of profit. 
but in this way however the competition has the effect to a certain limited extent of lowering the rate of interest for the power of bankers to receive interest on more than their capital attracts a greater amount of capital into the banking business than would otherwise flow into it and this greater capital being all lent interest will fall in consequence end of part two of essay four end of essay four